passage that we are reading today is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and verse 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 10. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is God's word. Good morning, everyone. When I was growing up, my dad was a painting contractor, and so I spent a lot of time around ladders. I got to know them well. My dad had a a truck with a a steel rack on top of it that you could stack an amazing number of ladders on. Uh, You could slide them in, you could stack them up. It looked quite comical driving down the road, but when we as a painting crew would show up at somebody's house, the first task was to get the ladders off get them up around the house. And there were a lot of things that went into doing that properly. One of the things I I learned early on as a young boy is that you can carry a tall ladder as long as you're holding it vertically. But if that thing starts to lean, you better watch out because it's going over and maybe on someone's car. You also had to prepare to climb a ladder well. You had to put it up on the house in the right place and you had to to get everything that you're going to need for when you get up there. I mean, there's nothing worse than than getting up to the top of the ladder, and you've got your sandpaper, and you've got your caulk, and you've got everything, and you didn't bring your your paint and your paintbrush. That's no good. But probably the thing I remember the most, after all the work of getting the ladders up, and getting everything that you need, and climbing up there, is that if the ladder's leaning in the wrong place, It's an utterly useless feeling. I mean, there you are 30 feet in the air, and you realize at that point that you can't reach what you're supposed to paint. And it's for that reason that I think it might be so that the the saying you've heard, there's no use climbing the ladder of success if it's leaning on the wrong wall, that saying might have been coined by a house painter. I think it's all too easy for us in life to go through the motions, do the things that we're supposed to do or we think and the things that people around us are doing and not ask too many questions about it. We trust that our preparation, our hard work, our climbing is all going to result in something. But what if our trust is misplaced? Are we sure that we're trusting in the right things? We've been studying through the book of Genesis, that great book of beginnings, and the the second half of the book of Genesis teaches theology, teaches truths about God through the lives of individuals, through the lives of some of the first people that had to learn to trust him. And specifically, we've been thinking uh, about Joseph the last number of weeks, this 17-year-old teenager who who I don't know what his thoughts about his higher education and his first work experience would be, but from the age of 17 to the age of 30, it's been slavery and prison 
for him. It's not what he would have predicted. It's not what he would have chosen. Well, it's interesting this week because the the camera, which was trained on Joseph languishing in prison, we picture him laying down at night on a on a stone floor, perhaps a, a dark, a smelly prison. Well, the, the camera is going to leave Joseph, and it's going to go from the prison over to the palace. We're going to think in the beginning of this chapter about Pharaoh laying perhaps on a plush bed with all the glory and the pomp of Pharaohdom around him. One man's life has been nothing but down, 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 and the other's has been nothing but up, up, up. But which man's ladder is leaning on the right wall? And what about you and I this morning? Are all the things that you and I are working on, are the things that you and I are trusting in, all the energy and the effort and the hopes, are they rightly placed? Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We'll be looking at chapter 41. Or scroll there on a mobile device. If you do that, I encourage you to silence all notifications. Last thing you want in the middle of our meditation on God's Word is something else pressing in from the outside. If you're writing down a main idea, I encourage you to do that or jot that into your phone. Main idea of our text is this trust the God who is there works providentially to save. Trust that the God who is there works providentially to save. And we'll think about that in three points. Number one, the God who is there. The God who is there, secondly, works providentially. Works providentially. And then third and finally, to save. It's my prayer that our study this morning would help us all want to trust him more. So Genesis 41, will begin with the first eight verses. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven years of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them. To Pharaoh. All right, so Pharaoh has a dream here. Uh, many of us dream, right? And, and we're not uh, thinking usually that our dreams mean anything significantly. Uh, one of my children that will remain nameless, as I was studying this passage yesterday morning, came out and told me that he had had a dream. I said, son, tell me your dream. He said, dad, there was a bat. I said, what'd you do? He said, I went to the kitchen and got a knife. I said, what happened next? He said, I don't know. I woke up. I don't attribute any great meaning to that dream. But dreams in the Bible, and we've encountered this in the book of Genesis, are often God's way of communicating. So we, we remember that Abraham and Sarah were protected by a, a dream given to a, another pharaoh. 
Uh, We've seen in the life of Joseph, his troubles started because of a a dream that he had that he related to his his brothers and to his mom and his dad. It was was a dream given to the the cupbearer and the baker that he interpreted that has led us to this point now. And so now another dream. And Pharaoh here, he he knows that this dream is some kind of a, a portent of doom. He knows it's not just a dream. After all, it it happened twice. He wakes up in the morning, and the man is in many ways not well. He's undone. Something we see in verse 8 there has left him very confused and very upset. And so he sends for the magicians, we're told, and the wise men of Egypt. Now, magicians is not a, a great translation. Don't, don't think magic show. The, the, the magicians and the wise men together were his top ministers. So combination of, of PhD and theologian, they were supposed to give him the, the information that he needed. And in this per- particular instance, they don't have anything for him. I think Moses intends for us to see a sort of humor here. I mean, think about how secure Pharaoh would have felt before this. He's the the most powerful man in the most powerful country around. He has all the wealth that he could want. He he himself is worshipped as a deity. And on some level, the, the pantheon of gods of Egypt are supposed to help him. On top of that, he has all the best and the brightest around him. Together, none of them can interpret this dream because none of them know the future. You know what Pharaoh doesn't have? He doesn't have a relationship with the God who is there. That's the one thing that he is lacking. And because he doesn't have that, he doesn't know the future, he doesn't know what the dream means, in a night, the emptiness and the impotence of his situation is laid bare, the man is undone. I think so many people around us misunderstand religion. To many people today, religion is just psychology. It's just a way, if it works for you, if it makes you feel good about your life and and gives you some kind of encouraging resources to face your troubles, then good. But but friends, that's not religion in the Bible. And it doesn't really make sense for that to be the point of religion. Religion is supposed to be about us as human beings knowing our Creator, knowing the God who is actually there. Is that the way you think about religion? Knowing the God who is really there? Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, if if you're searching for God, let me just encourage you to be authentic in your search for God. Don't listen to the people around you who, who tell you that all religions are kind of climbing the same mountain just from different sides, but we're all going to the same place. Maybe you've heard people use that illustration of different religions or just like blind men trying to feel the elephant and one man's feeling the the trunk and one man's feeling the elephant. It's all the same elephant. That doesn't make sense. Either the, the gods of Egypt are real or the god of Joseph is real or neither, but not both. Pharaoh is undone here because the emptiness of what he believes is brought to light in a night. 
You know, friends, even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should realize here that we can fall into worshiping idols, can't we? We, we can begin to elevate things in our lives to the, to, to the level of, of things that we put ultimate trust and hope in. They can become things that we begin to worship. But friends, our idols cannot bear the weight of our hopes. They are ultimately empty. The more that we trust in them, the more likely we're going to become undone, just like Pharaoh was here. I mean, how after all do the prophets in the Old Testament, when they come after Israel for their idol worship, it's because those idols can't predict the future. Who is like me, the prophet Isaiah quotes God as saying, let him proclaim it, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. It's only Yahweh that knows the end from the beginning. So the first question by way of application this morning is what are you worshiping? Are you worshiping the God who is really there? Let's continue reading in verse 9 and consider secondly that this God who is there works providentially. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass, Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. 
And the, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. The food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. All right, we'll stop there. The, the cupbearer, the chief cupbearer, remember he had forgotten Joseph, right? Joseph had said, when you're restored, please remember me. But he didn't. He, either either he, he just was so excited when he was restored that he really did forget about him, or maybe he just didn't care that much about Joseph to begin with. But now, with the, the royal court distraught, dismayed, and maybe he sees an opportunity for himself here to gain favor with Pharaoh, so he relates his experience, Joseph's dream interpretation. And look there in verse 14, it's striking. We've, we've been through years of down, down, down. And now in a moment, they quickly brought him out of the pit. Thirteen years, slavery, prison. All of a sudden, the direction of his life changes. He's cleaned and changed. Now he's standing before Pharaoh, the most powerful man, it's hanging on his very words. It's an incredible reversal. Now, to put ourselves in Joseph's shoes a bit, let's remember that he's been totally in the dark about God's purposes. We can almost see that the wheels in his mind turning here as he starts putting things together. He begins to make sense of what has been happening. I mean, he's believed in God's providence before, right? He's had to trust in that, but now it's all clicking into place. Brothers and sisters, the word providence is an extremely important word for us to grab onto with two hands. Uh, it means to supply what is lacking or what is needed. The word comes from the root to see in advance, uh, not just meaning to, to know something in advance, but to, to see to it in advance that things are provided that are needful. We encountered the concept back in Genesis 22. Remember those heart-wrenching words of Isaac to his father Abraham as they headed to the place of sacrifice. Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And what did Abraham say at that point? God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Literally, God will see for himself. He will see to it that there is a lamb for the burnt offering. You know, we, we use that language, right? See to it that something happens. See to it that the conference room is, is set up for the meeting. See to it that the, the funds are in the account for when we need it. See to it that something is done. That's the idea here. We can feel all these things falling into place for Joseph. God has seen to it that everything happens just at the opportune moment. I can see it now. God has seen to everything. I understand. Now, I think that the depth of what Joseph would have had to ponder here is just staggering. 
Because remember, so many of the things that God has seen too involve the sinful actions of human beings. His brothers sinned against him. Potiphar's wife sinned against him. Even the chief cupbearer sinned against him. And God, who is holy, whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil, God, who can never be the author of sin, nonetheless can work through the actions of sinful human beings to bring his good purposes about. All of that, Joseph would have been thinking about in his epiphany here. Now, I think it's important for us to realize this side of the grave, you and I will often not be able to read God's providence as clearly as he could perhaps here. Because reading God's providence requires all the facts to be known. And that's so rarely the situation that you and I have. I mean, Megan and I have pondered often the last several years God's providence in our lives. We, we thought we were going to, to be in China, and, and God saw fitting to take us out of China and to move us here. And, and there are things that we've been able to think about, ways that we've seen that we perhaps had grown comfortable, complacent, good things that have happened in our lives as a result of his providence. But that doesn't mean, ultimately, that we really understand. It's so much guesswork and uncertainty. There might be times for you where you can understand something of God's providence, but there'll be many times where you can't, where you will just have to trust that God is working all things together for good, as Romans 8, 28 says, that he's working all things after the counsel of his will as Ephesians 1.11 says, and that that will is good and pleasing and perfect, as Romans 12.3 says. We've got to trust it because we can't see it. Now, I want to take our application of this point a bit deeper because it, you won't be surprised for me to say to you that we should trust in God's providence, but, but we might ask ourselves some questions, some diagnostic questions. You may want to write these down. Think about these three questions. How do I know if I am trusting in God's providence? How will that show up in my life? Well, three questions. Number one, am I the same in a smiling providence as in a frowning providence? Am I the same in a smiling providence as in a frowning providence? You know, in many ways, Joseph is a really boring character. I know they made a movie out of him, but, but the thing about Joseph that's most instructive is that he's the same in the prison as in the palace. I mean, he interprets dreams. That's what he does. And when he interprets the dreams, he says, it's God. I mean, do you remember him in, in chapter 40, verse 8? Do not interpretations belong to God? It's the same thing he says again and again in this chapter. 41.16, God will give favor, Pharaoh a favorable answer. 41.25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. 41.28, God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. No great movie scene here. Just, just a man doing what God told him to do, prisoner palace. You know, if we trust in God's providence, it will mean a quiet consistency in your life and mine. I mean, do, do you come to church just when things are well? Or when things are bad? Do, do you serve in the church when you've got plenty of time? Or also when you don't have plenty of time? Do you praise God for good things? 
or for hard things too. So are we the same? That's the first question to ask ourselves. The second question we should ask ourselves, does God's providence over my suffering produce humility or anger in me? Does, does God's providence over my suffering does it produce humility or anger? You know, suffering doesn't automatically produce maturity in our lives. Actually, for many people, it makes them bitter. Bitterness is a subtle form of pride. When I'm bitter about something, I'm saying I'm not being treated as I deserve. I'd surely deserve better than this. Joseph speaks a better word to us here. This is, his, in many ways, is his one shining moment. The king wants to know what you think. What's the first thing out of his mouth? It's not in me. First thing I want you to know, Pharaoh, it has nothing to do with me. This is not the way to career advancement, Joseph. I mean, talk yourself up a little here. But, but the man is humble. Suffering has produced in him this softness and this deep humility. He knows that he doesn't have anything that he didn't receive. That's true for you and I. So is suffering producing humility in your life? And then the third question we can ask ourselves, does God's providence make me hardworking or lazy? Does God's providence make me hardworking or lazy? I sometimes hear the, the, the objection, the, the pushback the, uh, towards the idea of God's sovereignty and his providence is that this will make us lazy. If God's in charge of everything, then, then what do I need to do? Well, just notice that that's not the way Joseph is. It's striking to me that thinking on his feet there in verse 33, he doesn't just interpret the dream. He's got a three-point plan of action, and he writes his own job description for the civil service. I don't know how many of you are working in the civil service, but I'm imagining that not many of you got to write your own job description. But that's what he does here, right? I mean, he, he, he says, okay, number one, Let's, let's appoint a vizier. Number two, let's appoint some local officials. And then number three, let's institute a, a national rationing plan. Comes right out with that. And I think it's probably in his mind that he's writing his own job description. You know, 1 Corinthians 3.9 says that we are God's fellow workers. That is a staggering thought. God is God, we are not. But God invites us to be a part of what he is doing. So, so friend, does God's providence make you lazy? Oh, I can sit back and not do anything. Or does it make you hardworking? Lord, I want to be a part of what you are doing. So, friends, what about us? Do we trust in the providence of the God who is there? But, you know, the third and final thing we need to think about is the most important, because what is God working providentially to do in this chapter? Let's pick it up in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship, and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. You know, the first thing that that strikes us as we read this account is the faith that is granted to Pharaoh and, and to all his servants. I mean, think about what's being proposed here. That that, that while things are going really good, that we impose a 20% tax on the harvest so we can prepare for a famine that's seven years away that you say God has revealed to you. I mean, it's quite striking that, that they would believe that. But some combination of the dream that Pharaoh had and the spirit working in his heart, has made him believe that these things are indeed true. So let's notice here that Joseph, as he is elevated, he, he faces another challenge, doesn't he? I mean, he, he faced the challenge of despair when he was in the dungeon. He faced the challenge of pride as he was elevated. Well, here he faces the challenge of assimilation, doesn't he? I mean, as he's moved to this respectable place, he he faces the very real danger of becoming just like the people around him. Maybe even is the intent. He's given an Egyptian name. Zaphonath Paniah means God speaks and he lives. Maybe that's ambiguous enough to be either in the Egyptian religion or or in the Hebrew religion. But but then secondly, part of his elevation was to give him a, a wife from the Egyptian nobility, befitting his station. Asenath is the the daughter of an Egyptian priest who would have led worship of the sun god. Perhaps the intention is to swallow Joseph up into Egyptian culture and spirituality. And we we don't know how much of a temptation that would have been. 
We do know that when his sons are born, he makes a powerful statement in the choosing of names for them. You can look there again in verse 50. In in the Old Testament, parents give names to their children to reflect what's going on oftentimes in their own lives spiritually. So he names Manasseh, uh, which sounds like making forget in Hebrew. We're told that he's named that because God has made him forget his hardship. He he doesn't literally forget it. He would have no trouble remembering it. But it's been swallowed up, all of his pain, all of his suffering, and an understanding of God's providence, as we've considered. The pain of his suffering is faded, but not his faith in God. And Ephraim, which sounds like making fruitful, indicates that he now sees the good that he was sent to Egypt to do. He understands his job description. Brothers and sisters, we cannot underestimate the temptation to assimilate to the culture around us. And I've only been in Singapore a short time, but as best as I can understand it, it seems like Christians are generally respected in this country. In some ways, that's a good thing, but realize that that brings temptation as well. You and I can start living, desiring and craving the approval. We want people in the, the culture around us to look and say, Christians are great. And as long as they're, they're seeing our good works and praising our, the Father in heaven, that's wonderful. But realize there are pressures that will be brought to bear on us, where if we are faithful to the Lord, it's going to mean people thinking we are backwards, thinking that our sexual ethics are so yesterday and so oppressive. And there are just the really subtle things that the people around us, the waters we're swimming in, say the point of life is to to hoard as many resources as you can so that you've got a hedge of protection against anything that might happen out there and so that you can live as comfortably and as secure as you can. That is not biblical Christianity. The Apostle Paul lived his life as an offering poured out upon the the faith and the, the message that he's preaching to people around him. He was not living so that he could be more and more and more comf- comfortable. So ask yourself, have, have you fallen into thinking that your point in life is to have a, a better and better lifestyle as your resources increase? Perhaps the temptation to assimilate comes to you and just the, the subtle pressure not to be outspoken not to share the gospel with those around you. I mean, think about what we're saying we believe. We we confessed it when we were speaking the truth. We believe that there is a day coming when every human being will stand before their creator and they will be judged on the basis of what they have done. And we know that every human being on that day will be condemned for none of us can atone for our own sin. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the most important thing that you could understand. What we think as Christians, what we believe, is not that we are any better than anyone else around us. Actually, what we believe is that all of us are so bad that we deserve condemnation from God. But we also believe that because of the great love 
with which God loved us. He made a way of salvation when there was no other way. Such that any person who who sees their sin and says, yes, I I deserve that condemnation from you, God. You are holy. I am not. If any sinner will trust in the way of salvation, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was sent to live the life that you and I should have lived, and then died on a Roman cross, not to pay for his own sin because he didn't have any, to pay for the sin of anyone who would turn from their sin and trust in him. If you will do that this morning, you will be saved. You will be saved now, and you will be saved eternally. You know, the most important thing for us to see in this chapter of Scripture is not what Joseph is doing. It's what God is doing. Can you see God at work here through all of those details to bring about salvation? You say, well, it's just a salvation from famine. Yes, it is. But but God is at work keeping the promises he made to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. He promised there that he would bless Abraham and his descendants. And all those who bless Abraham and his descendants, he will bless. If anybody sees the, the faith of the children of Abraham and attaches themselves to that faith, then they will experience blessing. And that that blessing would spread out to all the peoples of the earth. That's what God said he was going to do, and, and though it's a, a temporary reprieve in many ways from famine, it is nevertheless a picture of what we understand the whole Bible to be about. Beloved, you and I understand ourselves now to, to be part of that great redemptive plan for all peoples and all nations. The message is supposed to go out through us as we, as we share good news, not, not that there's a way to to deal with a famine of food and hunger, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. We are to be those who go out, share that message with friends near, and pool our resources to send messengers to people far away. There need not be a famine of hearing the word of the Lord, for the message of the gospel is to be preached to all peoples, and then the end will come. So I think that we should let Joseph be a model for us. His life was caught up in that great plan of God to save people around him. And so it is for us. Those of us who have trusted in Christ have a message for the world. As we close this morning by way of application, it's worth just thinking about who has God put in your life? Who are the people that live right around you? Who are the people who sit next to you in the office place? Who who are the, the family members, the friends that you might speak to about the Lord Jesus Christ? Who might you even now start praying, Lord, would you give me an opportunity to speak to them the greatest news that the world could ever hear? You know, the point of your life and the point of my life isn't climbing the ladder of success. It doesn't matter, after all, whether we're going down into the pit or being lifted up out of it. The point of our lives is to trust the providence of the God who is there, the God who saves, and to pray that through us, he would make that good news known to others. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, you've been so good to us in Christ. That is what makes us want to gather and sing with joy to you. We pray that you would take our lives and use them for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the nations. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.